And welcome to the Plant a Trillion Tree podcast. I'm Eva Monheim. And I'm Hal Rosner. We're both certified arborists, credentialed by the International Society of Arboriculture. The purpose of our podcast is to encourage tree planting and proper tree care for our urban forest, which includes neighborhoods, parks, and other open space. We'll also cover the importance of the already existing tree cover and the benefits. So welcome, everybody. Thanks for joining us. This podcast is being recorded on November 6, 2020. Nancy Buley is Director of Communications for J. Frank Schmidt and Son Company, Wholesale Tree Growers of Boring, Oregon, where she has been talking trees for 26 years. A former newspaper reporter and food editor, she graduated in technical journalism and horticulture from Oregon State University a lifetime honorary member of the American Society of Landscape Architects, Nancy has earned national recognition for her tree advocacy and the stewardship efforts, including a decade plus service on the board of directors of Friends of Trees. A Garden Com member and graduate of Society of Municipal Arborists, Municipal Forestry Institute, MFI, Nancy lives and gardens in Boring, beneath an ever widening canopy of trees. Welcome to the Plant a Trillion Trees podcast, Nancy. We're so happy to have you here. Well, thank you, Eva and Hal. It's just a real honor to be invited to be on your podcast and to talk trees. So a lot of times uh, the discussion pretty quickly, uh, Nancy, gets to, you know, I no longer call it climate change. I call it the climate crisis. I grabbed that from a local radio personality, and at least here in Philly, and boy, I know you guys have been through it in the Pacific Northwest, you know, we're starting to look at the palette of trees, uh, and even 10 and 15 years ago, we had, you know, Betula, Acer, um, Sicarum, all doing well, but we have seen this trajectory of tree decline, and I also uh, had a chance to look at the uh, species list that you're recommending that, that Schmitz is uh, investing a lot in. Can you tell us a little bit about how you're going about expanding your species list and, and how the climate crisis plays into that? Back in the good old days, we grew trees that were easy to propagate, easy to dig, easy to plant, and easy to take care of out in the landscape, but those are maples, squidizia, um, ash. Uh, we had, once upon a time, had, I think about 20 cultivars of ash, American and, and, uh, and Pennsylvanicum. And uh, that's all changed. We, you know, we keep learning the hard lessons over and over again. You know, history repeats itself. Uh, we, we collectively, as growers and tree planters, uh, like to grow what's successful and sell what we can sell. And um, the unfortunate thing is that uh, if we plant too many of any one species or genus, um, we're setting ourselves up for 
a future disaster, as Emerald Ashborer has so quickly reminded us um, after we got through the elm, elm die-off from Dutch elm disease. You know, should have learned then. And on the other hand, the elm, the uh, loss of all the elms, American elms through Dutch elm disease really caused us all collectively to expand our planting palette. It uh, gave an opportunity for oaks to shine and, and ash and a lot of other species. So uh, when Emerald ash borer hit back in Detroit, what's it been, only 15, yeah. was it early 90s, 92, 91? Sounds about right, yeah. Ah, um, I mean, we knew about it right away, and uh, we, oh, we, we plowed under a lot of trees during those years, as did our customers. Mm. And, but right away, we, we, started expanding well we were already doing it but expanding our plant palette because we've learned over time the best defense against um loss of urban forest canopy is diversity so we've gone from well we have over 500 uh cultivars and species of trees that we're growing now and um back in the 70s I think there were maybe 150 or so at the most, and you know, lots of lots of crab apples, maples, and so on. And um, so we are doing our very best to expand our plant palette. And um, one of the things that is crucial is to develop trees that have better heat and heat tolerance, more adaptable, um, more drought tolerance and um, adaptability to extremes in temperature. That's, that's the hardest thing, is weather extremes. Right. Yeah, I mean, the, out here in uh, Zone 7, Metro uh, Philadelphia, and what we call the Delaware Valley, we're being advised that Phil the Philadelphia region isn't going to directly experience more hurricanes, but we are going to experience the uh, weakening of hurricanes as they come inland. So that for us, that translates into saturated soils and quite often the wind that's you know, following to blow the system through. Yeah, we've, we, I think we've got our hands full in terms of caring um, for, for what we have here. And like you say, every, every uh, year I find myself talking to clients about, well, you know, it's June, July, August, part of September, you figure 12 to 16 weeks of hot and dry, and it, it, it continues to challenge us. But I have to say, conversations with people like you, and I'm, I'm looking at your fabulous list of uh, species here that you've developed, changing climates, changing tree species. I have a lot of hope. I think, uh, I think we're, all of us in this uh, industry are, are, are gonna respond with a lot of energy and, and just, you know, recreate the, the landscape, so Yeah, to speak. we started, uh, well, our company's plant breeding program is a good, strong 40 years long. Um, started back in, uh, well, 1966, Frank Schmidt introduced the, the red sunset maple and still a very popular tree. And that was about the same time that I think Princeton Nurseries introduced October Glory a couple of years before that. And uh, so that was kind of what I see at the beginning of the, the, cult, the race to cultivars. 
And, uh, you know, cultivars are kind of getting beat up now by some aspects of the, the green green world because of lack of genetic, you know, genetic diversity. But there's a place for cultivars, there's a place for for species, you know, native species. And, and we have to remember, um, I mean, we're, our company is all about cultivars. Not all about cultivars. We grow many, many seedling tree grown trees too. But what we want people to understand is that cultivars offer predictable performance. And there, and we, one thing that was quite visionary, I believe, uh, started before I came to Schmitz 26 years ago, about 30 years ago, Keith Warren, who was our, our plant, um, new plant development director, he saw the, the need for native plants, the move towards native, the, the desire to use more native plants. And, and he started selecting trees like oaks, uh, maples, uh, nissa, hornbeam, American hornbeam. And it's taken about that whole 25, 30 years to choose trees that are, they're, they're one-off from there. They're not hybrids. They're a selection from, from a superior tree. And what we were looking for in those trees was really good vigor. That's, that's the best thing you can do for a city tree is right. have it vigorous. And, and good shape, strong central leader so they could be pruned, upright upright arching branches so that they could be pruned up to that magic bus size of 18 feet or whatever. If you, uh, if you keep a, keep a leader in it, you keep pruning it up and, yep. uh, and columnar trees uh, for narrow spaces and then trees, small trees. So the, you need, um, we're blessed with this company by growing millions of seedlings every year. And out of that, we have fabulous genetic diversity to select from and to get the opportunity to, to select uh, unique trees. So from the beginning, it's been, well, we've been able to choose some really good cultivars of native trees. And also we're always choosing, selecting for better heat and drought tolerance and more adaptability, that can, trees that can thrive in hot and cold climates. So that's kind of the, the sweet spot. Sure. Can I just, uh, I can't help myself. Um, I'm looking at this awesome list. I, I, I guess if I run my finger down the list, can we expect that Western Sun pistache will be growable in zone seven on the East Coast? Well, it, it depends. Um, okay. Some trees that are, you know, very heat tolerant will maybe have mildew problems or, you know, with higher humidity. You know, some of the trees that mm -hmm. do real well out here don't do so well. But what we do, we don't really know just right at the right at first. But what we do is we trial trees. We send out what we call trial pack to 30-some sites and have them evaluated uh, at public gardens and some of our grower customers and um, in all the different as many different regions as, as we can find cooperators. And that's how we figure out the regional aptitude. Uh, yeah, yeah, I see. So the testing uh, becomes really part, an important part of what you do to provide your clients the information that they need to know whether it's going to grow in their area. Mm -hmm. 
And do you ever point them to a client, uh, to a botanic garden to take a look at trees that might be in their area? Yeah, once we you send do, them samples? Um, well, just for example, when I was at Chicago Botanic Garden a couple of years ago, it was fun to go see quite a few of our trees that have made it, graduated into their permanent collection. So that, that's one example of a testing site where we send all, like we'll send 10 trees a year, our introductions plus what we are adding to our catalog. And we'll send those trees and they will evaluate them for um, at least three years. And you know, first, the first evaluation is did it live? And then as it goes on, you know, how is the fall color? Um, how is this bigger and insects and so on. And then if they really like the tree, they'll add it to their collection. Yeah, um, Bartlett Arboretum down in North Carolina is an evaluation point. And Trees of Corellis in Albuquerque is a customer. Um, Schickville is upstate New York. And Morton Arboretum. And Hasselkus is still watching trees for us up in Wisconsin at the University of Wisconsin. And uh, we always send all of our trees to uh, North Dakota, to North Dakota State uh, in Fargo. And uh, most of them go there to die, but some of them are hardier than we thought they were going to be. So. <laughs> right. That's, that's a really fascinating. Um, cold tolerance used to be a real uh, problem for plants, uh, you know, breeding for that zone four. Zone mm -hmm. three, which is you know more the more diversity they get in zone uh, four and three, they're happy because they've got something new to plant. Yeah, and and I think that when you're testing in those uh, really harsh conditions, it really makes a huge difference for your company to be able to sell yeah. something in those areas. Here in Oregon, Western Oregon, we can grow from zone trees generally from zone three through zone nine hardiness. Well, not zone nine, but we're a zone eight, but our trees will do pretty well down through zone nine. Um, we we really can't risk like growing a zone nine tree here because we'll get early freezes. It can be a mild freeze, but it could knock out a whole field of like we don't grow crepe myrtle or um, because it's just not a it's too risky of a crop. But but we've got a pretty big sweet spot where we can grow. With the Schicktels, we know them pretty well because they're kind of the pipeline source for uh, bare root trees that come down mm -hmm. um, to Pennsylvania Horticultural Society and the city of Philadelphia's uh, Parks and Rec Department. Do you happen to know offhand, Nancy, what uh, Schmidt Introductions Schicktels is using? Um, they grow a lot. Of our trees, they're actually our biggest customer in the east. So it's a, the east more than I can name, I think. Okay. And we have a lot of customers in the Mid Atlantic and Long Island. A lot of the trees that New York Restoration Project, um, and and now those are being sold to the city by our customers who got the liners from us. So there's we have quite a quite a presence, yeah. And nice. Is a white shield Osage orange from Schmitz? No, it's actually, it was introduced by, uh, we grow it, but it was introduced by um, Steve Biebrick in Western Oklahoma. And he was oh also my. the person who selected our Emerald Sunshine Elm, which is a really good performer. 
um, that was seed collected in China that he grew out, you know, hundreds and hundreds of seedlings and chose. He got down to his, what he thought was his top three, and then he sent those to us. And um, so we evaluated them for a few more years. And so that's, so that, and that's where White Shield came from. Too. Oh, that's where uh, White Shield was, is an Asian form, did you say? No, I've, I kind of switched on you. Um, no, that was the Emerald Sunshine Elm. Emerald, okay. Field is from Oklahoma, and Steve found it. I I believe that that's named after the a creek that that it was found in that area. And, and it's fruitless. It found to be a really nice tree. Yeah, actually, um, I I'm on the third floor at my home office, and I uh, my neighbor got one last year that we planted from uh, the tree tenders people, and it's performed extremely well. I think we got about 18 inches of shoot growth this year in yeah. its first year as a bare root. That's pretty amazing. Yeah, so, we test all of our, one of our test sites is Kansas State, the John Pear Center down in uh, Wichita. And so that's a really good place to evaluate trees for heat tolerance and drought tolerance. So uh, we, we draw from that pretty heavily, their experiences as to how we think the trees are gonna perform. And is it true that you're the largest nursery in the country right now? No, it depends on how you count large. <laughs> um, there are other nurseries that are quite a bit bigger than us, uh, but we're probably the largest strictly tree grower. We don't grow any shrubs, just okay. trees. That's our specialty. Okay, so uh, there's some just tree really, you know, excellent bare root tree growers out here. And, um, you know, Bailey is a large, large nursery too, but we, they have a full line. They're, they're a bigger company, as is Monrovia, a much larger company, but uh, we're the only ones. Actually, they're both customers of ours. And we're the only ones that are exclusively, I mean, biggest nursery that's exclusively trees, I would say. Right, right. I was going to ask, do you have a favorite tree? We ask everybody that comes oh. on the show. <laughs> well, um, I have, can I pick one for a genus? Sure. <laughs> you, yes, because no. you're going to tell us the same thing that you, you can't just pick one. <laughs> Actually, I, I do have a couple. Uh, I was admiring them as I left. I ran home and got some lunch. I live a convenient two miles from work. And um, there's a June snow dogwood that's right outside my front door. And that it's a Schmidt um, intro, but actually it has a Pennsylvania connection because the parent tree is, or I, I recently heard, I think it has been lost, but the parent tree is in media. Yeah, it's yeah. media. Media. Yeah. And um, I tracked it down with somebody at Swarthmore. This is like 30 years ago. Somebody at Swarthmore uh, told Keith Warren about it. Said, hey, there's this Cornus controversa over here in town. It's really special. Come come see it. And Keith said, yeah, it is a nice one. Uh, yeah, send us some wood. And uh, so they did. This person did. And um, it, it has become a really successful cultivar of, of giant dogwood. And it's just a blaze with fall color right now. So it's a, it's a great tree. And then Forest green oak is another favorite of mine. It's Quercus frenetto. And the seedlings actually came from Hilliers in England many, many years ago. 
And this was the, the best of the seedlings we decided. We called it forest green. And yeah, those are both in my yard and they're just lovely. I'm fascinated by uh, Quercus frenetto, uh, just because I finally got to Italy uh, in 2019 and just uh, got to, if I'm not, if I'm on the right track species wise, right? Italian oak? Yes. Uh-huh. And it seems like I, I, I right away thought, man, this is a tree that we need here in the Delaware Valley because uh, Italy was in the middle of its own, you know, mini drought and uh, trees were holding up really, uh-huh. really well. So you've got a cultivar of that forest. Yeah, yeah. And Keith selected that. One of the reasons was he selected it had really nice glossy leaves. But the other thing is that it dropped its leaves cleanly um, in the fall. So you're rather than holding them through the winter because some do. So this one had the marcescence, marcescence, and uh, it does. I can, I can, I can firsthand tell you that it does drop its leaves cleanly because I rake them up every year. And but I hate to rake them up because they're so beautiful. Um, So I just let them all fall and then regretfully rake them up and (laughs) and put them over in my over in my mulch piles. So, but they're, they're really, they're huge. And we planted about 20 years ago and wow. I, only re- I need to measure the DBH, but I, I know I can't reach around them at all, halfway around them. They're, they're just magnificent. So, and, um, oh gosh, right 15 years ago, I saw them at um, Hamel's nursery. And oh. I was surprised, we've sold it as a Mediterranean tree. Right. I never really tried to sell it uh, elsewhere. Some nurseries experienced some mildew issues with it, but the ones I saw at Hamels were just beautiful. Any the person at Hamels said they're great, but nobody knows what they are and they won't buy them. Uh, like four or five inch caliber. And oh uh, but there's some in the landscape, a couple of big ones from our trial pack in the landscape at Penn State. Jim. Uh, professor there um anyway i've seen pictures of them on campus and they're fabulous so you need to go check them out absolutely yeah. it gets yeah. really cold it's there really too. hard to introduce a new tree because people are afraid to try new trees so i think a lot of people don't realize how long it takes to get a tree to market too when you're talking about trees how long they have to be looked at and studied before they can be uh, sent out for experimentation, for trial, and then by the time it gets to, you know, to be in the nursery trade, you're looking at well over 20 years, right? Yeah. It's it's multi-generational. Now, 20 years is about our, our test from sowing the seed to bring it to market, uh, like 15 to 20 years. We, like with red point maple, which has become our top selling tree, um, it's a, a red maple. It was 17 years in development, and then it's been 15 years. About, well, 2006 we introduced it, and it it took it takes a very long time. It takes a long time to grow trees. People don't realize that. I've been giving talks on the timeline to market. We'll have trees for from five to seven years by the time we send the liners out. You know, say a one-inch branch tree takes us from five to seven years because we've got a couple extra years in the roots. And then 
um, a grower, a, a caliber tree grower will have that tree for another five to seven years to take that to say a three inch tree, uh, you know, three at a minimum. So it's, it's a good 10 years before a tree gets out to your, out to the landscape and many times 15, sometimes 20. So. And it also depends on the type of tree too, how fast of a grower it is and, or, you know, some of like Ace Grissium, which is a really slow mm -hmm. grower. Um, or any of the trifoliate maples that just take forever to grow. But uh, I think that that's really important for, for yeah. everyone to appreciate. And, and trees, just like people, are not expendable, uh, they, or they shouldn't be expendable. Um, you know, I just, I sometimes think that, that well, when you see people taking down trees like it's nothing, they have no idea what, what energy has gone into and how important and the establishment of that tree is for the overall ecosystem mm -hmm. and you know it doesn't it doesn't really start to do its thing until it's 20 30 years old and yeah. really doing its itself well and making the interconnections with yeah. its neighbors right right and you know one of the things i said why did you cut that tree down oh it was getting too big and it's just like ah it's just getting good right <laughs> right yes or or i topped it because it was getting too big and of course that that's enough to make an arborist cry i'm sure <laughs> all of it. cry a lot about that out here we we really do and i think again yeah, we go back to the right tree for the right place um the whole idea of making sure that we we are mindful of what we're planting just like having a child with too small of shoes and we never replace them uh, you know, you want to make sure that there's plenty of space for that tree to grow and to really do its thing. Yeah, one, um, yeah, soil volume is so important. Urban planners need to plan for the space. And I mean, the tree is always the one that gets the blame for bucking the sidewalk, but it wouldn't do that if it had enough soil volume to, to grow, place for it to get its nutrition, its water and nutrients. So I'm preaching to the choir here. We all know this, but so many people don't. <laughs> well, and I think it's also, I think it's important to talk about that because we know it and we want everyone else to know it. And the more we spread that, I think is, is a good thing. It's like having a child, if you don't feed them or you don't provide them the right space, they're, they're not going to grow to their full potential. And I think there is more awareness than, than when I started here. Um, there's so much more wealth that the value of trees is actually going mainstream. It takes about as long as it takes a tree to grow, but um, that great information that we knew about the Forest Service first and Greg McPherson and David Nowak and the, the folks that crunched the numbers uh, to give us the tools to determine the value of trees that that's been out for quite a long time but it's gone mainstream you see it in new york times and fast company and um the the big nonprofits, and nature conservancy and uh, the other organizations are jumping on board and recognizing the value of urban trees so it's really exciting but health and wellness the whole health and wellness issue uh -huh. of, uh -huh. of trees and um that's that's exciting uh, I'm wondering if there's any other products or any other tips that you can give to our listeners, whether they're landscapers or whether they're nursery people 
what kind of tips can you give about growing and any new uh, standards or best practices? Best practices, yeah. Best practices. I I think um, if in in the perfect world, uh, all landscape architects would would get uh, their at least their ISA certification, and which to me is just enough knowledge that you know the right questions to ask. Well said. Thank to you. To ask of the the higher level arborists and. Arborists would come visit nurseries more as and and nurseries would get off the farm and go hang out with landscape architects like I've been doing for the last 20 some years at the SLA and get out to the go to the arborist conferences and just more cross pollination. And there's there's such great information out, especially on uh you know, circling roots, landscape contractors really need to pay attention to, you know, understand what a well-grown tree is and then demand it and be willing to pay for it. Because there's a lot of bad trees out there. And it's hard to uh, maintain a high standard if price is the only consideration. So just communication. We're giving, a, uh, I actually got invited to be part of the ISA conference that will be taking place in December, virtual conference. And um, I've teamed up with um, an arborist and another grower. And we're going to talk about this very topic about climate change and trees and growing strategies from root bags to bare root and containers and best practices. How do you like the growing bags? They're good, depending on the species. We find that the trees all react differently, and they can be really great, or they can be just as bad as a plastic container if you leave them in there too long. So you really have to be careful of treating them just like a container and not leaving them in that container too long. Right. And, And of course... Um, you know, we, I still see, and I was just looking at some documents the other day for a municipality, and they still are saying, well, you know, you can, you know, just take off the top quarter of the cage and the burlap you can leave on. And, and it just makes me like cringe. <laughs> I'm like, oh, no, no, you want to take off as much as you can. <laughs> you know, trees weren't, pla- they didn't grow with cages on them. You know? No, no, no. We, just, I mean, we've come a very long way in collaborating between the designers and arborists and growers and and maintenance folks, and we've got a long way to go. But there's been, I think, good progress. Yeah, I agree. I agree. So we we talked about um, the the different types of you you have bare root trees you but what's it like percentage or can you give us some kind of percentage of bare root versus um bald and burlap when you're shipping and are you shipping really big stuff clear across the country uh no our company uh the biggest b&b well b&b is just a small part maybe i think less than 10 percent of what we do we, we grow trees on about 2,000 acres and the B&B operation is about 180, and it, we don't grow any bigger than two inch, kind of one inch. There are, there are large liners, trees that, that don't bear root well. And we do ship those all the way across the country, like beach, the, you know, small, smaller sizes. 
um, containers. Um, it's, I'm really not sure what the percentage is, about a third of what we do. We have about uh, an 80 acre container yard and most of our product line, our trees are not container, most of them are not container grown, they're containerized. So okay. we have the other bare root, we harvest them and pot them up in a, in a bark medium and then grow them from February, March through the next year. So they'll be released for sale in the fall and then we'll sell them through the next summer. And then if they're not, we hardly do any shift up at all. If they're not sold, we'll toss them out. We'll mulch them uh, because we don't uh, want to have circling roots be an issue. So, right, right. So most of them are, are, are bare root and then into containers. And we do ship containers all the way across the country, but the, the backbone of our business is bare root. Do you do anything by rail or is it all uh, tractor trailer? Um, some of our customers do rail. Mm -hmm. uh, it's it's totally up to the customers. We'll help arrange. Our Canadian customers, a lot of them use rail, and some of our mid Midwestern customers, but some will take the chance with um, not using. It's hard to get refrigerated containers, from what I understand, for rail. And um, but we feel that it's important. If we were doing it, we'd only do it refrigerated because sometimes the trees can get kind of off on a siding and lose them all in a freeze mm. um, but yeah there's more rail than there was um but we help arrange freight but Jen, that's a customer decision and it I works see. pretty well in canada not so well here but. because they're they're more inclined to do a lot of their trees that way because they do so many trees up there mm -hmm. in, in Con mm -hmm. conifer good market up in uh, up the great lakes the Customers around the Great Lakes in Canada. Uh -huh. We didn't ask you, Nancy, how you got, how you found horticulture and how you found Schmitz. Are you a native to uh, the Pacific Northwest? I am. I probably, let's see, I was born probably 15 miles away and born in this area. My folks were, my, my family was Oregon Trailers, so I've been here a good long time. My family has been. And, I uh, went to high school with Jan and Frank Schmidt, and I was a berry picker. That was my, my, uh, my field experience was in the berry fields, and uh, went to school at uh, Oregon State and took a journal, well, studying journalism, and then I was helping my, my boyfriend learn pie materials and started taking walks around the campus and noticing the trees. and gosh, this is pretty interesting. So I took a horticulture class and uh, then I ended up minoring in horticulture and majoring in journalism. So my degree is in journalism and um, worked in just general newspapers for a while and then worked for the OAN a bit. I learned the names. I learned how to spell Latin names before I knew what they looked like because I was hired to proofread the the OEM Buyer's Guide and Directory when it was all on paper. And so I uh, did some contract jobs for a couple of years for that and did some writing for them. Just kind of gradually, you know, did some work for golf magazines and freelancing. And then when we moved back to Oregon, Frank knew that I was, we were moving back up, moving home. We were in California for nine years, Santa Barbara area. 
And uh, actually, we sold a lot of Schmidt Bear Root trees down there. So we were, and what was it that Gillette had? I liked the company, so I liked the razor so much, I went to work for them or something like that. But anyway, so we had, I'd been on the customer end of Schmidt's, and then we moved back here. And I just happened to be in the right place at the right time. We were looking for somebody to help Keith Warren do some writing. Good story. The summer job, 26 years later. So you certainly made the industry great with what you do and all the PR that you do for, for Schmidt with Garden Communicators. Oh, we yeah, all well, love you. Thank you. <laughs> we all love when you. When I first came to work at Schmidt's, I'm going like, what are those people over there doing? Oh, the landscape architects and... Well, my husband, the contractor, landscape contractor and a golf course superintendent. So I had a foot in contracting and I think curiosity and being a journalist, just like, well, we're just talking to each other. Let's, let's spread out a little. So yeah, I, I, I put my writing efforts into trees and became this crazy tree geek and fell into a really great group of people. So in, in um, closing, you've given the trees their voice. Oh, thank you. Well said, Eva. <laughs> You've given the trees their voice. And I think that that's really important. Especially <laughs> when we think that we, we need to plant the trillion trees that are waiting to be planted. And they you, are. And we're, we're growing a couple million of those a year. So, you know, if, if people keep buying, we'll keep growing. <laughs> Good. Because we're going to need them. <laughs> that's right. We do. <laughs> well, we thank you so much for coming on the show today. And... Um, we look forward to seeing you and hearing more about Schmitz down the line. And we hope maybe you'll come back and visit with us again. Well, I'd love to do that. It's been fun. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Take care, Nancy. Thank you.